Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. So if you want to get questions to me, that is the 100% uh, proven uh, peer-reviewed, absolutely <laughs> verified way of getting me questions is sending them to me at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you put them in the comment section of my YouTube videos, I probably won't get them because um, that's not where I'm looking for questions anymore these days because I just can't be paying attention to the comments every single day. There's just too many of them. All right. So, hey, guys, um, what an interesting week. This week's podcast, I really, really encourage you to check out because it is, um, it's got masks in the title. We talk about masks. I have Dr. David Kyle Johnson back on. He is a professor of critical thinking and a wonderful man to talk to. He's, he's always fun. And we had a great talk about masks, pseudoscience, critical thinking, how to spot you know, some guidelines, some rules, some ideas that you can use to sort of spot nonsense because there is a lot of nonsense flying around right now about um, COVID-19, about masks, about how to protect ourselves. And we go into quite a bit of detail about um, some of the claims being made on all sides about masks and why they actually are important and useful. So I really hope you guys will check that out. Just trying to uh, do my part to <laughs> help people out out there on this topic and keep people alive in these troubled times. Uh, okay, so exciting things coming up in the not-too-distant future, by the way. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that because I don't want to overpromise. But um, but there have been, I've, I've been getting some backlogged projects caught up in the recent weeks. Um, I've had stacks of stuff uh, that's Scientology-related that I've been scanning and putting into a digital library. And that is a time-consuming task. And um, anyway, so I've been getting to that and some other things that I've been working on. So looking forward to getting some of that content out to you guys. And next week's podcast, by the way, the Sensibly Speaking podcast for this coming Saturday is going to be something extremely different from anything I have done before. And I I, it, I had the bet. I had a wonderful time recording. It's already uh, recorded. And I hope you guys will check, watch for and check that out. Um, I will just say, I'm just going to be a big tease and just say it's going to be, um, it, it's pretty cool. But it's definitely on a topic I have never discussed before or even touched on in this on this channel. All right, so with that all being said, let's go ahead and get on to your questions for this week. Laurent Zauclair, my question for you is about cancel culture, especially in the X slash anti-Scientology community. I've never been in Scientology myself, but I've been involved with extremist activist groups where we were lucky lukes of boycotting, canceling people and groups faster than our shadows. Your brilliant interviews in the last few months on social justice warriors and activist groups have really been eye-openers for me as to what I was involved with and how it shaped my way of thinking even years later. Thanks a lot for that. Anyway, I've noticed in some of the Scientology Watchers groups that there are a lot of people who decide to cancel or boycott Scientology actors, singers, etc. In a way, I do understand why... I wouldn't want any of my money to end up in Scientology's pocket. How effective is it, though? If the artist in question gets wind of the boycotting movement, wouldn't it isolate them even more and reinforce their beliefs? 
And if the sole goal is to prevent more money getting into Scientology's pockets, does it affect the church in any way? Okay, thank you for this question. I recently did a a show uh, here, Critical Conversations, about cancel culture, and I hope you got a chance to see that. Um, And this form of canceling, cancel culture at its heart is basically boycotting. Um, And, you know, call-out culture, cancel culture, this idea that, you know, somebody is saying or doing something that you don't like, and so you want to somehow lash out at them or harm them or do something that will affect them adversely in some way because you don't like what they are saying or doing. And in the case of Scientology celebrities, this has always been a little bit of an interesting thing to watch for me because over the years I've watched lots and lots of commentary on social media about this subject of what we should we do about Scientology celebrities and does not going to their movies or reading their books or listening to their music, you know, really do anything um, is it useful? Is it effective? Um, you know, these kind of things like Laurence is asking me here. So let's, you know, let's go ahead and talk about this. Um, it, for all intents and purposes, I mean, you know, practically speaking, it really isn't having any effect on the celebrities in question or on the Church of Scientology overall. The, the much, much larger effort being made against Scientology broadly is having a tremendous impact on the Church of Scientology. Let's be super clear that I am talking about the boycotting of Scientology celebrities' materials. I'm not talking about the larger movement here. Uh, We have been extremely effective in fighting back against the Church of Scientology's abuses and engaging in, um, you know, PR education campaigns like my channel and what Leah has done, etc. So that has been uh, very, very useful and has pushed back quite a bit against Scientology. Now, when it comes to, you know, oh, I don't like Tom Cruise, so I'm not going to go see his movies. Well, how many people fall in that camp? Probably a significant number based on what I see fly across my Twitter feed, um, not from my followers or people who have ever had anything to do with, but just yesterday, Tom Cruise was trending on Twitter, and I went and looked and saw, you know, to see why and what that was about. And um, there were about half the tweets. I went, I went down and looked at a, a whole bunch of the, you know, trending hashtag Tom Cruise tweets, and about a full half of them mentioned Scientology by name and that, and that Tom Cruise was not someone to be supported. People couldn't deal with watching his movies, always thinking about him as the nutty Scientologist, etc. Whereas half of them were very supportive of Tom Cruise and his efforts in calling him and his work great, wonderful, I love it, I can't wait for the next Mission Impossible, etc. So, you know, at least there you see some effect from this. But is Tom Cruise's career really hurting as a result of his Scientology activities? It certainly has, but as far as us boycotting him, I don't think I don't I don't really think that that's particularly been uh, something he has had to take note of. What he has done that has been negative for him and had negative repercussions on his career was when he started acting nutty on camera outside of his movies. <laughs> and the studios were like, yeah, dude, you can't be doing that. And, and they had to chill out on that. Okay, so um, 
So in terms of its effectiveness, you know, does it have no effect? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that canceling or boycotting or or not, you know, that individuals out there choosing to not watch his movies um, I'm, or any Scientology celebrity, if we're talking about um, – Oh, Elizabeth Moss, uh, or any, you know, or Laura Prepon, or any of these other, or Prepon, or however you say her last name, and um, and the other, you know, Scientology celebrities out there. Obviously, um, you know, Kirstie Alley has not really even been producing anything for years, as far as I can tell, and John Travolta just kind of continues having a career, although most of his movies these days are are seem to be straight to DVD, which kind of tells you some things about where he's at. And, um, you know, and Tom Cruise's career is is kind of, uh, you know, really only being having air pumped into it because he's going to go do some filming up in outer space. You know, I mean, he has to get all gimmicky in order for anybody to pay attention to him now. So, you know, so their careers are all kind of anyway. Um, anyway, so I don't know. As far as, you know, you asked specifically, would it isolate them even more and reinforce their beliefs if they got wind of a boycotting movement? Because, and I'll say because of their Scientology beliefs, of course. And yeah, that would. That That, that is the kind of effect it would have. Um, I don't know, though, that... See, I, I would not really group this kind of boycotting into what what really goes on with the full extreme of cancel culture cuz cancel culture is not just a boycott it is a it is it is it's more than that it kind of builds on that but it's really an effort to ruin them utterly and that's right out of you know that's that's parallel to how Hubbard recommends critics of Scientology be treated, and that's why you see me pushing back against cancel culture. Now, as far as Tom Cruise goes, I've said many times I can't really deal with watching Tom Cruise because I know what a monster the guy is, and I just can't really you know handle watch. I can't suspend my disbelief long enough to pay attention to him playing a character. You know, he has to kind of not look like himself a little bit in order for me to get anything out of it, which is why I can still enjoy Tropic Thunder because <laughs> that was pretty good. And um, and even, you know, and, and as the years have gone on, my, you know, my pushback on this has died off in my head a little bit, but I still, I just personally can't stand the guy. And I don't watch uh, John Travolta too much because, um, ma- mainly because his movies suck, you know. Um, but I don't, I've, I watched the Invisible Man, the Elizabeth Moss movie, and I, I'm going to end up watching the, the, uh, Handmaid's Tale, because I'm going to do some videos about that on this channel in the, in the coming months. So, you know, so I'm going to go through some of that stuff, but, um, but I understand why people want to not contribute money to Scientology, and they think by not giving money to a movie distributor or a movie theater, then there's somehow, you know, dim down the the downline there. Um, money will somehow be denied, you know, to the celebrity themselves, which results in less money to the Church of Scientology. And again, practically speaking, probably more, you know, symbolic bite there than than uh, symbolic bark, I should say, rather than real bite. As far as the celebrity or the studios really feeling any sort of pinch from that kind of thing, because I really don't think very many people are doing that. Um, but you know, 
fads, things kick in sometimes. And like I just said, you know, yesterday on Twitter, Tom Cruise was getting as much hate as he was getting love. So, you know, so it's a little hard to tell. You know, I'm sort of talking off the top of my head here about this, but the more I think about it as I'm as I'm answering you, the more I'm thinking it's it really is hard to gauge or measure without some really intensive surveying or something how much of an effect it actually has. So, you know, maybe it has a huge effect. I you know, I I'm I'm just sort of thinking from my own experience and off the top of my head here that it's probably not that big of a deal. But it does. And let me let me let me wrap up with this in terms of instead of arguing or sort of trying to figure out whether it does or doesn't really financially, you know, distress the celebrities or Scientology, I'll say this. I think it's a good thing for people who have, you know, who are trying to take a stand for a moral reason or they have an emotional investment in something. I think it's a good thing for people's mental health to be able to make strong decisions about what they do and don't want to support and then make a public stand about it. I really don't see the problem. I mean, really, no matter what topic you're talking about, even the, all the bad ones, is it better for the mental health of the individual involved to be able to say loud and proud, this is what I am, or this is what I think, or this is the protest that I am now making? And I think that in almost 100% of the cases, it's going to be better for that person's mental health to be able to communicate broadly and loudly that that's what is on their mind. So, you know, so I think for the people involved, for, for you know, for that side of the boycotting activity, um, I, I think it's a good thing. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I don't think people should be stuck in a, well, this is ineffective and doesn't do anything because it does something for you. And that's not that's not an unimportant thing in the bigger picture because you know you're doing it to make a stand to make a statement about something let's say but you're really doing it for you and that's there's nothing wrong with that you know at the end of the day and in fact like I said I think it's a good thing for us to be doing that so anyway just uh, just thought I'd throw that out there Cyprian Ivanov. Do Scientologists see a connection between the high demands for activity and the eventual amnesty initiatives when people get fatigued, lie, or systems break down? How do they explain the need for periodic amnesties? This is a damn interesting question, Cyprian. You must have dug kind of deep because amnesties are not something that have been issued in Scientology for decades. The last time I remember any kind of amnesty in any form, it was right after the IRS victory, the tax exemption victory, and that was in 1993. When I, and, and to, be, to clarify for everybody, within the world of the Church of Scientology, amnesties were issued periodically under L. Ron Hubbard's reign and couple times under David Miscavige, to celebrate, you know, some big, huge achievement or, um, or give, you know, sort of it, some big tumultuous event had happened and they got over it and they cleaned it, everything got cleaned up and the church was celebrating. So let's issue an amnesty and forgive everybody that, you know, was, was purged or something and let's get everybody back in the fold and let's get on with things again. That was kind of the spirit or attitude with which these things were presented. And they were, they were infrequent. I, I, can, I think I can count on one hand how many amnesties I saw come down the line over the years. Not a lot. And none, like I said, since 1993. 
not that I'm aware of. And um, and these would always be issued by command. So it was L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige who would issue these kind of things. And um, and the idea is, yeah, it's a kind of a recovery type action, a way to get people back in the fold. I was really hoping, we were all hoping, um, just as a little anecdote on amnesties in Scientology, um, there is no relationship, by the way, Cyprian, at least not within my experience, between the heavy workload or demand for, you know, all the emergencies and the, the overwork and all that. There really isn't a whole lot of relationship between that and amnesties. And here's an example of why. When I was on the RPF, we thought that with the we knew about the um, the basics, the books coming out, all the books and lectures. I had we'd all been briefed about that coming, and we didn't know exactly when it was going to come, but we knew it was going to be you know sooner than later. And we were actually working on renovations projects and various activities that we did to um, work on the bridge warehouse, work on renovations for various things to make this whole thing happen, and. Um, and, of course, also we built the call center that all the people ended up sweating bullets 24-7 in. I mean, we worked on that stuff as the RPF. And we were so, – I was sort of thinking, and there was sort of a little bit of a rumor going around within the RPF that maybe when the basics were released, it would be such a tremendously huge event that Miscavige would issue an amnesty and that we would all be reprieved or amnestied off of the RPF because that's what happens when an amnesty happens is it could, clean, it could theoretically, unless it said specifically that it was not for RPFers, then such an amnesty, an international amnesty, could clean all of our ethics files and we'd get off and we'd be back in the good graces of the church and wouldn't that be amazeballs. And apparently there had been some kind of amnesty like this. Um back oh in fact they were telling stories about the 93 amnesty because a couple of the poor sods who were on the rpf with me had been on the rpf in a separate program back in 93 this was like in the mid 2000s i'm talking about now they hadn't been on the rpf this whole time they'd been on it back then graduated it and then landed back on it yeah, that happens sometimes. And uh, I told myself very, very clearly when I got off the RPF in the Sea Org, as a Sea Org member, I told myself, I am never doing that again. I knew people who had gone back to the RPF once, twice, you know, and I was like, nope, I'm not going to be one of those people. If they send me back to this thing, I'm leaving. And that's all there is to it. That's what I told myself, right? So anyway... We thought this amnesty would be issued. Well, no, there was no amnesty whatsoever. It ended up just being this stupid rumor. And they were telling stories about how back in 93, there had been this thing about the coming amnesty, and they had heard wind, caught wind of this amnesty coming. And they had been working almost 24-7, which for the RPF is completely illegal. The, the policies on the RPF say you're supposed to be getting seven and a half adequate, you know, number of hours of sleep every night so you can go in session and do the program. And these guys had cast all of that to the wind because they thought in a few days we're going to get this amnesty. And, um, and if I'm remembering this right, 
and I think I am, I, I could be wrong about this, but what I remember is being told that they worked for like four straight days, got hardly any sleep, weren't doing any redemption in, you know, in hopes of this amnesty coming down back in 1993. And then the amnesty came, but it didn't apply to the RPF. And so, sorry, guys, no amnesty for you. And I, I, th- I, think, that's, I think that's true. I don't think the 93 amnesty cleaned out the RPF either. But if not that, then maybe it was some other, you know, situation that I'm confusing with 1993. But either way, that was the last time I know about any amnesty happening within the world of Scientology. And I had thought a couple times over the years that there would be another one issued because of some great big event. Never happened. So uh, anyway, I, I hope that's of interest to you. Hey everyone, I wanted to take this opportunity to talk to you about a service that I am endorsing and that I truly, truly believe in. And that service is called BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp. And they are available through BetterHelp.com. And this is a service that connects you with a licensed professional counselor online so you can get help with depression, anxiety, stress, or just somebody to talk to in this very, basically, very troubled times that we're living in right now. It is not easy to get out there in the big wide world right now. It is not easy to get out and see therapists or counselors. It is not easy to find counselors or therapists who can help you. And this is what BetterHelp was designed to assist you with. The simplicity of this is you go to the site, you sign up, actually you use the link (laughs) that I have provided below, uh, which is betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton, and you get signed up. And this can be for as little as $40 a week, and they actually even have uh, financial aid available. You enter some information, fill out a questionnaire about yourself, and you get hooked up with a counselor that will help you out. And this can be via text, via voice, or via a video, okay? Any one of those. It's up to you and your comfort level. And if the therapist that you get connected with isn't doing the job that you feel you need, you can ask for and get a different counselor. So there are a lot of options for you in this, and it is really something that I think a lot of my viewers should be taking advantage of. I have talked often about the need for or the help that you can get through professional counseling. Sometimes you need somebody who really does know what they're doing and not just a friend or family member to listen. And that's why this service is something that I am happy to put out there for you guys. So again, use the link below, betterhelp.com slash Shelton. That is in the description to this video. And I hope that you um, can get the help that you might need from this service. Let me know how it goes. No one. I have a friend who had been following and working for a group that is from the book A Course in Miracles. Originally, I chalked it up to more of a positive postulates or the secret kind of thing. Have you looked into this? Is it a destructive cult? Hey, thanks for asking about this. And I did finally look into it. And I don't see that this is a a destructive cult or the textbook or manual for uh, a destructive cult, although, of course, be- uh, you know, that could happen with this book. Okay, so here's how this breaks down is a woman named um, Helen Shuckman, woman named Helen Shuckman, 
1976, ended up publishing this book called A Course in Miracles. And there's some interesting backstory to it. But the bottom line is it's a book um, that she and a, a, a partner wrote. Um, and again, this is back in 1976. I'm just looking it up here. And it has to do with spiritual transformation. It's not about the secret so much, or although I'm, I'm sure positive thinking is, is part of this whole thing, but it has to do with a, a spiritual philosophy that's sort of, sort of neo-Gnostic in nature. And it has to, you know, that, that we are all really, at the, at the bottom of the fundamental of all of life, we are all one life, which is God is kind of what I got from reading about this. I didn't read the book, of course, but I read about the book. And um, this is the kind of thing that comes up. And it was uh, apparently this woman, Helen, um, said or claimed that she was um, channeling Jesus when she wrote it. And it took her a long time. It took years to get the whole thing written out. She would bring, you know, the transcript or whatever in with her partner. They'd go over it, edit it, etc. And um, it ended up being this book or this course that consisted of three sections. There's the text, and then there's the workbook for students, and then there's a manual for teachers. And it was written from 1965 to 1972. And here's the thing about this. It's been variously promoted uh, on Oprah, Marianne Williamson talked about it, and then they sold two million volumes because thank you, Oprah. That's really what America needed. And it's called Everything from New Age Cycle Babble to a Satanic Seduction to the New Age Bible. And I don't know that it's, you know, I mean, New Age Cycle Babble, I mean, kind of. It's, you know, it's um, it's not so much psychobabble as it is spiritual babble, but it's, a, it's just a belief system. It's a belief idea about God and our relationship to God. And if you want to follow that, well, it's, you know, you're perfectly free to do so. It's just a belief set. I couldn't find, getting past the belief set itself, which is not what would make it a cult anyway, but just to kind of explain what the whole thing is about, I could not find evidence in looking into this of any mainline group or group of leaders or leader who are, you know, doing some kind of cultic movement with this. What I see from the research I did is a bunch of different groups interpreting the material however they want. The books themselves are not even the, the copyright. It's, it's in public domain. Anybody can take A Course in Miracles as a book and expound on it, and people have. That Marianne Williamson has and various other authors and, and spiritual leaders have taken this book and run with it. So you have a lot of different flavors and brands of A Course in Miracles. Everybody who does it, who does it or reads it can interpret it their own way. And the satanic aspect of this is certain religious groups, of course, have looked at this and said, well, this is not what our scriptures say, so therefore this is bad. And this idea that we're all one with God and, you know, this kind of thing is, is heretical to our beliefs where it's, you know, where dualism and the, and the God-follower you know, relationship is very clearly established and we're not just all one big happy being uh, and this kind of stuff that we have to somehow realize, you know, that, that, that that's the problem. So anyway, you can check it out and read about it. There's a lot to know about it. But that's what I saw in going down the line on this. Now, having said that, 
if you were to find some group out there that was focused on this as their dogma and the leader was being abusive and was taking advantage of his followers, well, there's your standard cult model. So could you use this material to set up a destructive cult? Easily. So has somebody done that? Probably, but um, but I couldn't, again, I couldn't particularly find evidence of any one group that was using this as a focused activity and ripping people off of money or taking advantage of them for sex or power or whatever, et cetera, and, you know, all the checkboxes we talk about. So that's, uh, that's my take on that. Ferdinand Reese, why is there such a heavy emphasis on taking niacin, an important B vitamin, in Scientology? Certainly, there are health benefits from niacin, but this is easily consumed through whole grains, fortified foods, fish, nuts, and vegetables. Why not just put Scientologists on a healthy diet during their purification rundown? I also have another question regarding vitamin B12 deficiency amongst Sea Org members. Did you know of anyone who suffered from B12 deficiency? I imagine that during the rice and bean diets or stints in the RPF, that B12 levels may have dropped amongst some Sea Org members. For those who don't know already, B12 is consumed in animal foods or supplements, and B12 deficiency can result in permanent nerve damage. Okay, Ferdinand, thanks for the question. Um, I believe, and this is just my take, but I believe that Hubbard was really sort of taken with the idea of niacin back in the 50s when he was first doing a whole bunch of vitamin and supplement research and, and just basically giving people just pounds of vitamins and supplements to take to see what kind of an effect it would have on Scientology and Dianetics auditing. And they had a thing called the guck bomb in the early 50s, and, they, and Hubbard played around with this stuff, and he also was using... Um, benzedrine, uppers, amphetamines, and things like that, also with auditing. And remember that auditing is basically hypnotism. It's a trance induction. It's it's in you know inducing trance state, getting a person to relive incidents in their past or recall things from their past, or carry out the same action in present time over and over and over and over again for hours on end. And this puts people in altered states of reality, and then they are more suggestible pre- and post-hypnotically to suggestions. So that's basically, in a nutshell, what's going on with auditing. So the um, you give somebody drugs on top of that, you know, or mess with their supplement balances, and over short or long periods of time, you can start messing with their mental states. And Hubbard loved experimenting with people and finding out what he could do to them. Well, niacin has a unique property in that it produces this red flush. It, it, it opens up the capillaries, the blood, you know, starts coming out more, and you get this red flush. And I think Hubbard was really, really interested in and could not explain through any other way than through um, the release of radiation that he thought was stored in the cells of the body, that this is what the capillary flush meant. And so niacin must be this kind of super supplement or super vitamin, because look at what it does. It releases radiation. And in the 1950s, remember, Hubbard actually wrote a whole book about this called All About Radiation, did two congresses on the topic of radiation, and spent a lot of time trying to convince the, the, the general public that Scientology had solved the problem of radiation poisoning. 
and that they had the solution to what happened if there was an atomic war and all the radiation in the environment. And this was a big bugbear, a big goblin in the 1950s, radiation and radiation poisoning. This is the height of the, you know, not the height. This was the, the really the, the ramp up of the Cold War. And radio, you know, radiation and nuclear war were real concerns of people. This was something that, you know, like we're concerned about COVID right now. Back then, p- folks were worried about atomic war uh, being a very real possibility and there needing to be some kind of remedy for this incurable problem of radiation poisoning. And Hubbard really thought he'd, he'd hit on something with this niacin thing. So that's why he, you know, for whatever reason, whether, whether somebody told him about it or he saw this, he just wouldn't, he never gave up this idea about niacin. And, and it carried forward all the way through to 19, late 70s, 1980, when he came out with this sweat out program, and which became the purification program. So, so as far as I can tell, that's why they're, they're so big on niacin is because Hubbard was so big on it because he had these really crazy pseudoscientific ideas about what niacin and vitamins and supplements were doing. And of course, Hubbard really isn't the originator of that pseudoscience. Vitamins and supplements have been being pushed on us for no good reason whatsoever since the early 1900s. And this became a real, real big fad in the 1920s. And and it's never really let up ever since. And, you know, the amount of false information that is being propagated out there about vitamins and supplements is probably, well, I'm just going to say, I, I personally believe, after learning what I've learned about this, that 99% of what you read or hear or have ever been exposed to uh, dealing with supplements and, and um, vitamins is just straight up false, just straight up wrong. You don't need to be taking daily vitamins. You don't need supplements. You don't need all this nonsense, all these pills that people are shoving down their throats, trying to boost their immune system and all this other horseshit nonsense. It, I tell you, it's, it is shocking the degree that we are being taken advantage of by these companies out there on this particular topic. And I hit on this because I was researching MLMs, multi-level marketing companies, and the very first one was Neutralite, which was a vitamin and supplement company back in the 1920s or 30s is when that started. And I, 30s, I believe it was. And it was a total con job. And the MLM framework laid on top of it was just another level of con. So anyway, it was quite interesting going down that little rabbit hole. So when you ask about um, B12 deficiency, I really didn't see much in the way of B12 deficiency. The Sea Org are fed animal products on a regular basis. We had eggs every morning, chicken, meat, you know, beef. So we had adequate B12 amounts given to us in our diet. You brought up the rice and beans time, and yeah, that would have been a time when things were a bit rough. But I never observed a rice and beans punishment go on in the, in the years that I was in the Sea Org. At any one time, I only observed rice and beans go on for about a week or two. Uh, two weeks, I think, was the longest stint I saw. Mm, maybe three weeks. I think maybe mm, two, three weeks uh, that I saw an org, not my org, but a different org on the base. 
a different organization on the base was put on rice and beans as their diet. And I think it went, I think it was two weeks. And the crew can still supplement their diet by getting stuff out of the canteen, and they do. Believe me, they do. When rice and beans is is coming down, they don't unless they revoke your canteen privileges also. And I don't recall ever seeing in the pack base the um, a rice and beans enforcement with a refusal to allow you to go into the canteen. Perhaps, and it would be no stretch of the imagination, that such a thing could have happened up at the Int base or could have happened at Flag or very easily could have happened at the PAC base before I got there. But the whole time I was there, that's what I saw with, uh, with my experience. Um, so B12 deficiencies, not, not really much of a thing in my experience, but you know, I'm not making any claims that it was never a problem for anybody in the Sea Org. It very, very easily could have been. Peg Gantz. While listening to your most recent Q&A, I realized that I have no idea if, in the Scientology belief system, body thetans are limited to human beings or if animals also have them. In fact, what is the role of animals, particularly pets, in Scientology? Well, that's an interesting question, Peg. It's one I've not considered before. In all the material I've read from the OT levels, uh, Hubbard didn't particularly bring up animals or the fact that animals would have body thetans. In fact, it's always been, and I've addressed this before, it's always been a bit of an interesting question as to whether there's a thetan, an individual spiritual entity, connected to each individual pet. Lots of Scientologists, especially cat and dog owners, are absolutely convinced that their pet is occupied by a thetan. You know, they say, just look in his eyes. You can see it's a thetan there. You know, and why a thetan would be occupying a dog or cat body, nobody ever really particularly mentions or talks about. It's really interesting the way Scientologists sort of like assign these ideas and then don't really think about them too much. Like, oh, so does that mean that lions and tigers and bears would have thetans? You see, it's really not addressed. It's, there's this general idea of theta, life force or life energy, and then there is a thetan who is an individual. And Hubbard is very clear that the individual Thetan is an individual independent entity, is not connected or tied to any sort of other entity. We're not all one creature. It's not like that in Scientology. Hubbard was very clear about that. So, um, so when you look at, you know, and then he and then he did these the, this, you know, plant thing with the tomato where you see him with the e-meter and he's got the electrodes stuck into the sides of a tomato. And he said that the results of that research, quote-unquote, that he was doing with the tomato, was that life didn't have a, a separate or, or, or different or unique nature um, if it was a plant versus whether it was an animal. It's all sort of thetanically inspired or motivated, or that's what is life, is theta. So that's as deep as he ever got about it, at least as far as I was exposed to. So that's a, that's always the sort of where I have to end off in talking about it because I there's everything else past that is just individual Scientologist conjecture, unless there's other information I didn't uh, didn't get exposed to, which is entirely possible because there's thousands of lectures and I did not see or listen or read all of them. So. But that's what I do know about that. And uh, so body thetans with animals, uh, 
Not, not that I know of. And uh, there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Jane Smith, what were your favorite pastimes while a Sea Org member? Do people normally play cards or chess or checkers? Was gambling ever prevalent? Yeah, you know, um, back in the day, they used to do some gambling in the estates division, but that was before I arrived in the Sea Org. The Sea Org was a little more rough and tumble when I arrived in it as far as uh, that sort of thing. And they could get away with uh, after-hour shenanigans a lot easier. Things really clamped down after the summer of uh, 1995. Um 1996, sorry, 1996 is when things really changed in, in the pack base. And all this kind of stuff got, got kind of thrown by the wayside. And you, if you were, you know, at, at the end of the night uh, after work, people would sit around smoking and talking sometimes or, you know, have uh, have little conversations and stuff. But, um, but mostly you're supposed to just go secure, you know, so there wasn't too much of that. And certainly not a lot of organized activities. I did see people in the stairwell playing little chess or checkers games or sometimes Game Boys or little electronic stuff. But um, that was about it. And um, as far as my favorite pastimes as a Sea Org member, it was pretty much reading. <laughs> or um, I tried to write a little bit when I was in the Sea Org, but that didn't really work out very well. It was very, very difficult for me to get in the headspace to be able to do that. So um, it was reading, it was hanging out with my wife, it was um, uh, watching videos uh, in our room, you know, on, on days off or sometimes sneaking them after post time. The Doig. I know that some businesses use Hubbard's WISE system, but do any businesses pay for individual employees to go up the bridge or do Scientology courses? They're not supposed to, but yes, certain Scientology businesses absolutely pay for their executives to go get auditing and training at Scientology organizations. When I say they're not supposed to, I mean it really shouldn't be that a company is paying a guy's personal bridge services, but when they own the company or are stakeholders in it, then I guess that's one of the perks. So that's, uh, that's what they get to do. Daniel Unruh. Let's say you get up to OT7 and get rid of all your BTs. Then you die and you pick up a new body. Do you then have to go through the OT procedures again to get rid of that body's BTs as well? Or do reborn OTs somehow repel BTs? Or is this yet another of the things that Hubbard never really explained? Daniel, this is a tough one because this was actually one of the key questions and points of illogic that I saw when I was first was exposed to the OT levels. And I was like, wait a minute, what? You know, because what happened? Well, you get all these BTs and then you die. And what happens if you come back and you got another body and it's got all these BTs and you got to go up through the OT levels again? Like, what, what do we got to do here with this? And it really wasn't clear. And as far as I can tell, when you get a new body, that's what's going to happen. But it's not clear. Um, it is what what is clear is that you are not repelling BTs because you can still attract them after you've done OT seven. You can go out and live life, and BTs can still come and get you. And you got to go in session and 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 you know exorcise them. You got to pop them. You got to get them off of you. So, um, so that can happen. But as far as um, getting another body and having them all back again, I'm not sure. But it certainly seems to be, according to the uh, Hubbard's logic, that would make sense. And if so, 
Eek, right? But how does this even work? I mean, if not, if you can go get another body and it doesn't have any BTs because the BTs were following you spiritually, then why are they called BTs and they're stuck to your body and not to you? Like it doesn't, and, and, and let's be clear that Hubbard said they're stuck to the body. That's why he literally called them body thetans. So it's a, it's a strange set of ideas here. It's not really very logically or internally consistent. I have many questions, and if Hubbard was around, I'd ask him, but he's not. And, um, and his materials on this are not super, super specific. So best answer is Hubbard didn't really get into it, and you're left to figure it out for yourself. All right, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching or listening, as the case may be, if you're getting this on the podcast audio version. Um, I really, really want to ask you for your help to please spread word about my channel out there on social media uh, to your contacts. I really want to grow my channel, and I really want your help doing that. So if you are finding my content interesting, educational, and informative, and even entertaining, then please do um, let your friends and family know about it so they can find out about all the awesomeness that is here to be found also. (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks again for coming around. Thanks for your support, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.